House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Hi, everyone's cheery. Hey, and, and today we've got the one and only Detective Holly. Hello, and now they're cheering. Now they're sure. Now the people are just throwing themselves at you, you know. It's like, uh, yeah, it's a habit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. And you're doing, uh, you said you're doing some signing event in, uh, what, is it New York somewhere? Or? Oh, yes. I'm doing a signing event uh, next month. This month, though, it's kind of interesting. I'm dealing with, uh, I have the, uh, the Sherlock Holmes Society. They asked me to do a co-lecture with them because I do research for Jack the Ripper, and they want to kind of uh, connect it and talk about uh, how what Arthur Conan Doyle did with uh, that and he, or did not do. So it's, it'll be a really uh, enjoyable lecture. Oh, and that's, and that's actually the society. So they, they're really hard up for guests? Or? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I paid them. I paid them a lot of money, so don't tell anybody that. <laughs> oh, I'm terrible. I know. You'll be good. You'll be good. Anyway. Well, partially. Well, anyway, that's um, me. I'm just doing rewrites, so it's nothing important. So, um, anyway, let's get on to the guest today. Uh, we've got uh, an author today, and uh, the, her latest book is called Family Business. So let's welcome S.J. Roseanne. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> well, I always say uh, we'll see you at the end of the show if you're still <laughs> Still in that frame of mind. Um, well, let's see. Um, you've written quite a few books here, too, right? This is like, uh, I don't know how many I, you've done. I, it looks like. I believe this is number 18. Wow. Some in the That's series great. and some uh, outside the series. So you might actually take up this thing writing. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it seems to, uh, to be not a bad way to spend my time. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what, what's there a particular thing that got you into the writing world, so to speak? Was there some sort of an event or something that happened? I, you know, I, it was what I always wanted to do when I was a kid. But when I got into college, I thought, well, you can't just be a writer because you want to be a writer. You, it's like running away to join the circus. You can't just do that. So I went to grad school. I, uh, I became an architect. I practiced for years and years. And I had a really good job. I was lucky enough to have a really good job. It was so good that when I wasn't happy, I knew it wasn't the job. It was the entire profession. It just was the wrong place for me. And I started writing, and I, it was a thrill different from anything else. And I remembered how I'd felt when I was a kid, and, and that was it. And, and I, was, I was off at writing, as they say. What what part of the writing um, is your thrill? And I mean that because um, you're doing uh, fiction books and you're doing stories. And no matter what story you're going to write about and what time and what country or what kind of whatever goes into it, you end up having to do research, right? You have to get involved into um, the community or the whatever's going on. So there's a lot of research. Um, is it the research part or is it the actual literary part that, that is your thrill? Well, the, the thrill is in producing the 
it, it's not actually in writing, as Dorothy Parker used to say, it's in having written. You look back and you say, oh, that's not a bad sentence, and it didn't exist before I wrote it. Hey, but having said that, I love doing research. I love research. I could probably research all day, every day, and never write anything if somebody would pay me to just sit around and research. Um, I, for my research, I go places. I walk up and down the streets. I talk to people. I read books. I see movies. I, I do go very deeply into research, and I just love it. Um, I, I love to go places, and I love to learn things. So research is a great way to spend my time. Wouldn't that be kind of dangerous, though? In your last book, if you're Chinatown, you're, uh, you're dealing with yeah. some seedy characters. When I first started doing the Chinatown books, I had a friend whose sister took me around in Chinatown. I have a bunch of Chinese friends, and this, this woman would take me around, and she'd say, okay, now, don't turn around, but there's a gang of ghost shadows on the corner. And, of course, I would turn and say, oh, you mean the guys without socks? Oh, how cool. Um, and... She'd say, I don't know you, and she'd walk away. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been known to, uh, to follow um, uh, black gang members down the street writing down their dialogue, you know, to learn their rhythm. And, yeah, it, it, it hasn't gotten me in trouble yet, but I think that's because I'm, I'm just this short, harmless-looking woman, and people don't know exactly what it is I'm doing. Uh, so I, 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 don't, I don't worry too much, but um, now, uh, you know, I know a cop to call, so that's good. Um, I'll just, I'll just right, keep it right. there. Um, no, but it, it's, it's um, I'm, I, as I say, I haven't gotten in trouble yet, and now I probably will. But uh, Yeah, yeah, we'll make sure people. Thank you. Well, they thank probably you. just think, they, they probably just think, who's that crazy lady walking right, down the street? Right, crazy lady walking down the street with a yeah. pencil in her hand, you know. <laughs> Yeah, they probably think, well, it's, there's a lot worse on the road. Yeah. <laughs> Not just sleep or a low, right? It doesn't matter. Well, that's a, but now it looks like you were an architect before. So yes, I was. That, that seemed like a very structured sort of um, discipline sort of job, I would imagine. Do you take any of that? What, how do I say it? That you know what it was to be an architect. Do you take that personal experience and put it into your books too? Yes, I do, and that's exactly what I take. Not the um, and that's and you phrased it really very well because a lot of people ask, um, do I it did did learning how to structure something help in the writing? And that it doesn't. But learning the discipline of a thing has to be done. It has to be done well on time. Um, you have to learn to take criticism. You have to learn to take input. Uh, architecture is a completely collaborative profession. Writing is a lonely profession until you're done. Then it's completely collaborative. Your agent has stuff to say. Your editor has stuff to say. Uh, the bookstores have stuff. Everybody has something to say. So learning how to do that and how to ride that wave without any kind of, without getting perturbed about it. That's what I took from having been an architect that, that long time. And when I started writing, I didn't leave architecture immediately. There was a very, very long overlap. I sometimes describe it as um, when you walk out into the ocean and you walk and walk and walk and walk and walk and walk and you're still only up to your knees. It was like that. It was a very long uh, parting from architecture. 
See, now you've learned something, Mike. Now you know how to, you can That's be right. a writer. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying. He needs, he needs discipline. Uh, All the help I can get. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and now, so now you're writing, this is this, this book, Family Business, is part of a series, yes. right? It's part of something that you've, you've got the same characters kind of running. Um, now, I always ask this, like, so when someone is writing a fictional series and they're using the same characters and a lot of the same things going on throughout it, have you pre-planned all of the books? Do you outline the whole story and then divide it up and give us a book at a time type thing? Is it all kind of pre-plotted, so to speak? Absolutely not. It's not only oh. is the whole thing not pre-plotted, but each book is not pre-plotted. I don't outline. I don't guess I, or merely guess. I have an idea where I'm going. I have an idea. I knew what family business was about in the sense that it was about, one, real estate, and two, the tongs, and three, what it means to be someone's family in, in various ways. That was all I knew. So things continually surprised me. In family business, one of Lydia's brothers finds a girlfriend, and that I did not know was going to happen. And I don't know what that's going to mean uh, in, in the future for other books. But, no, I, I don't... Uh, I don't have the whole thing in mind, partly because I don't know how long, how many pieces the whole thing will be. Doing what you uh, suggested people do would, would mean, you know, I, I would have a whole arc and I would divide it into, say, 24 books um, and, and go from there. The only person I know who did that was Sue Grafton because she was doing Letters of the Alphabet and there are 26 of them. So she, <laughs> oh. she could divide her story into 26 parts. But um, I, I don't do that, and I, I don't outline either in, uh, in uh, the maxi or mini form. Well, that's interesting in the fact that you've – that's okay for a couple of books. When, when you're getting into 10 or more books, how do you keep track of everything that the characters have been through? Like you sort of have to be – careful that they don't say or do something that wouldn't fit three books ago or four books ago, I would imagine. So do you have sort of some sort of formula that you keep with your characters? No, but I do have histories. That is, I know who knew whom in what book and who had never met whom and, and um, when this kind of thing occurred and when that kind of thing occurred. So People can say, you know, I didn't know that four years ago. Well, of course, you didn't know that four years ago. You hadn't met so-and-so, that kind of thing. So I, I kind of keep – it's not exactly a back outline, but in some ways uh, it's like that. It's a Bible that I create as I go along. So, so, so who are your characters to you? I, and, and I mean that in the sense of how is it that you – they come to you. I, like. I've talked to a lot of writers, and I'll get people that say that they're like their family, they're like um, children. They're, I get all sorts of descriptions like that. What is your description of your characters? Well, my main characters, uh, Bill and Lydia, and then the people around them, Lydia's family, Bill's 
uh, friends. Bill has very little family, and they only appeared once so far. But they are like people I've known for a long time. I would say they're like friends in that I like them a lot, and uh, they, we don't argue much because I sort of know what it is they're going to do. So I, I would say they're like friends, not like children, uh, because children you can tell what to do, and they either will or won't do it. Bill and Lydia, I just sort of follow around, or I suggest things, uh, which I know sounds really weird. And I remember when I read uh, The Color Purple, there is a postscript that says, I thank everybody in this book for coming. And I, when I read it, this was many years ago, I thought, oh, please, you know, that's kind of precious and silly. You, you made up everybody in this book. And now I get it, because you, know, you really don't necessarily make them up. Or you make them up and, and you think they're going to do something, and then they refuse to do it. They want to do something else. So you know, it's not that I think I'm channeling these people out of outer space or out of the great beyond or anything. But I do think that they're coming out of a place in me that I can't access consciously and I can't control. I just have to see who is there and then let them do what they seem to want to do in this circumstance. Yeah, I was just curious about that because how about, uh, let's say, characters that are from a different generation – than you. Well, once it occurs to me whom I need, I do then research. Or once somebody walks in and, and says, I'm, I'm your new character, and uh, I'm, I'm 85 and I didn't immigrate from China until I was 80, then I go meet some old people in, in that circumstance and okay. talk to them and, and so on. Uh, other generations, you know, it's funny because uh, there are certain certain people I can't really do. My nephew has been after me for a long time to write a young adult book. And I just, the 13, 14, 15 year old generation, I can't make it happen. Uh, I, can, I can do younger kids, older kids. And so I would not populate my books with those people unless one came to me whom I thought I really could portray. Right, someone with an old soul. <laughs> someone with an old soul. Those, those I can do. <laughs> That's right. Well, so are you hearing voices? Is that it? No, I wouldn't say that. Even in dialogue, I'm not actually hearing voices. Although when I write dialogue, I know what it would sound like. So I don't have to actually hear it. But I am seeing people walk into the room my characters are in or they knock on a door and I see who it is who opens it and then I describe that person and that person becomes part of the book. So I didn't know who would open the door until I got there. That that kind of thing. I, I know it's it all sounds so um, uh, <laughs> ridiculous. But. So, so, so you really are the weird lady walking down the road. I really am, in fact, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> now we're getting to the truth here. Let's get to the real stuff here. Let's, let's talk about this. Um, well, so the the whole series with the, this couple, 
what made you go in the direction of this is like a private eye, this is sort of that sort of system. Do you, do you, do you have like a love for private eyes and, and old detective stories or stuff like that? Or I, I do. Where is it? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, the private eye is that world-weary voiceover uh, classic icon. Uh, it's an American form, although it's been now taken over into other cultures, but the police procedural and the amateur detective both came out of England, but the private eye came out of America after World War I. And it was a form where someone who had seen a little too much had his eyes a little too wide open to be able to believe in any of the myths of the, the golden future. That's who the private eye is, that classic voiceover. Robert Mitchum, uh, is, it comes to mind immediately, that classic white male voiceover. And what the voice is, is the voice of someone who, if he didn't know what he knows about the, the, the rottenness of a lot of life, could basically have anything he wanted. He's white, male, healthy, young, straight, as long as he went right into the uh, establishment, he could have whatever he wanted. But these men couldn't do it. Uh, you, you get, you have uh, um, the, the this this refusal to take on that role, and that's the heroism of the white male private eye: is the stepping back and saying, "It's a rotten system, and I'm not going to be part of it, even though I could be on top of it." So that was the first, that was Bill Smith, uh, who was the first voice I had. And then I needed a partner for him who was his opposite in every way. So she's a short, younger woman. And then I decided, oh, the hell with it. Let me make her from a different ethnic group. And then she'll be his opposite in every way. And so that's how she got to be Chinese-American. So uh, now, how much of you, of you goes into each one of these characters, these two main characters? Oh, interesting question. I think she is me as I was when I was young and in college and going to save the world, and he is me as I am now, when I don't really think the world can be saved, but I try anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were just going to say where I'd given up trying to yeah. save the world. No, well, see, the, thing is, the, thing about, the thing about the private eye is that he never does give up, but he saves the world one person at a time. The one person he can, he can do something for right now is the only thing on his mind. Whereas with Lydia, Lydia is always thinking that, that everything can be better somehow, sometime. And uh, I think that's what I used to think. Yeah. The bubble hasn't burst yet, oh. really, do you? Not with her. <laughs> Just give it a little time. Yeah, right. As soon as you say, so you put her out in the pandemic for a while. <laughs> yeah, luckily she doesn't get older at the same rate the rest of us do. So, nice. it, you know, she, uh, she has not yet gotten to the point where that bubble will burst. Nice. Can you do that for me? Yeah, you know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> 
Yeah. While you're at it, you want to write me in as I'm yeah. still 25? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to. Yeah. <laughs> the curly Goldilocks hair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I don't know if it's possible when I've got no hair to add curly hair. But you never know. So now if you're descri- just to describe Lydia Chin, uh, how would you describe her? Like, who is Lydia? She is a small, athletic, Chinese-American woman with five older brothers, four older brothers, there's five of them all together, um, who always wanted to know all the secrets and always wanted to solve all the problems. And it seemed to her that becoming a private eye was the way to do both. She's smarter than she thinks. She's better at her job than she thinks. She's just a little insecure. Um, and and she's, she's not a dragon lady. She's not uh, a kung fu princess. She is none of those Chinese stereotypes, although she can fight and she is pretty. Uh, but she's not, she's not gorgeous and she doesn't have super long fingernails and that kind of thing. So that's, no. that's how I would describe her. That's Mike. That's right. <laughs> Silver fox with big long fingernails. Yeah. And a goatee. And a goatee. And he can fight. All right, there you go. I'll introduce you to. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> no, he doesn't need any more kids. I know, I have six. <laughs> so. Oh, my God, really? Yeah. Well, I yeah, stopped yeah. at four, so I don't know what happened, but uh, that's a different story. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's a whole other chapter in the book. And, and you can use that. I, I think that'll I be, might. <laughs> that will be the next book. Now that you've, you've invested so much time into this couple um, and, and what they do together and, and all of that, where does that come from? Like, what, you've invested so much, and, um, like, why? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> like, I don't mean, you know, it's, I didn't know how else to put this. I don't, it's not really where it comes from, or it's not really, oh, why are you doing that in a bad way? I'm just saying that you, you, you seem, you must really love this, and you're going on with, the, you're following this pair throughout life, and they're doing, a, they're facing a lot of adventures, and, and it's great, and, and it's a really progressive moving on story, but, um, what is it about these these characters and these stories that are, are driving you? That's 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 a really interesting question. For one thing, you know, I alternate as narrators from book to book. So, Family Business is her book. The one before it, The Art of Violence, was his book, and and so on. And they are each the narrator and the other is the sidekick from book to book. Yeah, I get to see them from uh, one another's point of view, which allows me to talk about each one in a way that you really can't if you're only writing in the first person as, as one of them. Um, a lot of the stories are set in New York, and I love New York, and I love to write about New York. And uh, I, I think actually most of them are. And they're all about something that I find an interesting topic to explore. And to explore it, like, for example, gentrification, which was family business, to explore it in the context of characters I know so well means I don't have to build an entire world. You know, in, in science fiction, they talk about world building. I don't have to do that because I've already done that with uh, Lydia and Bill. So it's a matter of taking those two people 
who are in some ways very different from each other and some ways very similar, and putting them into a situation where I can look into the issues that that situation brings up. Uh, there was a bill book called Winter and Night in which he narrated a story about high school football, which she could not, nobody would, would hire her to work in that world or, or not in a natural way uh, that, I, that I could figure out. But for him, it was a natural. And I had a lot to say about high school football. And in, in their various books, that's what happens. There are things that I am interested in in researching and exploring and discussing. And I can do it with these characters whom I've come to know so well. It, it gives me a quicker entree into the world I want to talk about. Hmm. So you actually do have a subtext throughout each book. There is some sort of a, a, a topic going on underneath the physical story. Absolutely. There absolutely is in, in every book. And so it, I, I try to do it in the form of questions. Uh, very, very rarely do either Lydia or Bill, does either, yeah, very rarely does either Lydia or Bill make a pronouncement. And if one of them does, the other one says, well, I don't know. Yeah, think of it this way. I like my readers to see the different possibilities. Usually I do have an opinion, a very strong one, on one side or the other of whatever question I'm exploring, but I, I like to bring up the questions because if they weren't questions, it wouldn't be an interesting issue. If the question is X and the answer is Y and everybody can see that, then there's no point in writing a book about it. So, yeah, there's absolutely an agenda in each book, but it's more an agenda of asking, could we do this or could we do that or could we solve this problem this way or that way, and then having the readers think about that. Had a character that you had to uh, uh, have a point of view that you disagreed with, but you had to research it even more to get their point across better? Yeah, yeah, that that does happen because there are there are attitudes that I think, oh well, you're completely stupid. Um, we're not going to even start with you. But if someone in the book says it takes that attitude, I don't want anybody to pre be presented as a stereotype or a caricature. I want my characters to really all come across as real people. You know, there's there's an old uh, saying that uh, every person is the hero of their own story. So nobody actually thinks they're bad guys, even bad guys. They have a reason for doing what they did, and they can tell you what it is. And, you know, I had to kill him because, um, you know, he disrespected me. He didn't like my dog, whatever. I had to kill him. And you think, well, no, you didn't. But in his mind, he did. He's being reasonable. And so I want everybody to come across. I want everybody's reason to come across to the reader so that the reader will be able to make their own decisions about who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. So, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time on 
the bad guys so they don't come across as just greedy. You know, there, there was always that question about in, in the James Bond books um, where people wanted to rule the world. And the question is always, why? Um, what, what would you get from ruling the world? <laughs> um, and I, I don't want just those evil geniuses who want to rule the world or or evil idiots who will never rule right. the world, but they're just evil. I want people with reasons for doing what they do, even if their reasons are manifestly bad. The, the more interesting cases to me are the ones where two people have a good reason, each have a good reason for doing what they're doing, but the reasons are in conflict, and they can't both be right. It's impossible. And those, those stories interest me. So um, the characters, the, these, uh, you know, Dr. Evil, like all the, <laughs> the bad characters in the book that are looking for their $1 million or hold the world on ransom or something. Uh, but these, these characters, um, where do you get them from? Do you like, are you, are you the type that, you know, you're walking down the road kind of taking notes, but are you going to coffee shops or hanging out in a supermarket and looking at people or like, where does it, where does, where does it, you get your and, and inspiration? Saying, and saying, you look like a bad guy to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, actually that happened once um, in this way. I, I had a bad guy or a, a uh, compromised guy. He really was a sleazy lawyer in a book. And I started writing him and I could not make his dialogue anything but cardboard. He just wouldn't live on the page. And I was so frustrated one day. I went out for a walk and I ran into a lawyer I knew who had recently been divorced from a friend of mine who had told me things about him that he didn't know I knew. And he's on the street. Hi, how you doing, SJ? What's up? And I'm thinking, oh, you sleazebag. Really? Um, and I went home and I gave my compromised lawyer that guy's physical characteristics, the shape of his lips and the color of his eyes and the length of his fingers. And all of a sudden, there the guy was live on the page. And I thought, and you will never know that this is you. Um, but uh, that, that, you know, usually the bad guys are in, in conflict with the good guys. The good guy wants something, and the bad guy says, no, I want this instead. And so they come as uh, uh, almost mirrors of each other. They, they, come, they arise in reaction to each other. And then that bad guy spawns another good guy, spawns another bad guy, so on and so on. In uh, family business, I have two sets of bad guys in the tongue who are in conflict with the law. They're in conflict with Lydia and Bill, they're also in conflict with each other because each set of bad guys wants something different. And that to me is, is a nice juicy situation that you can get lots of, uh, lots and lots of good pages out of. So if you see someone you don't like uh, out in the world there, you know, in the, in a supermarket or something, so you, you take that character and kill them, don't you? Uh, it, it's been done. It's been done. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I would be careful about crossing me, uh, just because. I mean, all all crime writers feel feel like this, you know that that you can you can do whatever you want, but I can put you in a book, 
So, you know, just watch it. I, on the other hand, occasionally, um, I have two friends who were very helpful to me in this, in this book, in family business. They, uh, there was a time when I was having a real problem, problem with the plot, and we, we sat down and had coffee, and they, you know, talked it through with me, and they were really helpful. And so I decided that uh, I would name characters after both of them. So next time we got together, I said to her, the, the, the woman of, of the pair, I said, I've, I've made you a major gangster. And she said, oh, goody. And I said to him, and I've made you a cop. And he said, how come she gets to be a gangster and I have to be a cop? And I said, well, you know, there aren't that many female gangsters. And he said, well, okay, all right, I'll be a cop, but I have to get shot. So, I, you know, I had to shoot him. Um, so, so, you know, some people would rather be the bad guy. But I don't think they understand mostly. They think I'm just calling the bad guy by their name. I don't think a lot of people understand they really are the bad guy. So I have my revenge in the end. But not this woman. She's not the actual bad guy. I mean, in the book she is. In real life she's not. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, and, and Bill Smith. So the details of Bill Smith. Uh, tell, us, tell us about him. Well, you know, he kind of came, interestingly, he, he was my first character, as I said, and then Lydia was developed as, uh, as a foil for him. Uh, he came kind of fully formed. He's, he's from the South. His mother had relatives in New York. Uh, her, her brother was a cop here in New York. He is from Kentucky. His father was in the Army. And they lived on army bases all over the world. He plays the piano. He speaks, I don't know, five or six languages. He is an art connoisseur, but he's also a kind of big, rumpled, private eye-looking guy. You would never know these things about him. And he has an office above a bar, or that is, he has an apartment above a bar. His office basically is the bar on Lake Street. And... He has been in love with Lydia since the day he met her. And she has been in love with him since maybe book three or four, but won't admit it, or wouldn't admit it for a while, and uh, because it would be just such a, a mess in her family. And now they're getting closer and closer to admitting it. So that, that is the situation with him. Oh, okay. So he's not going to be like Superman. He's going to be bisexual or something. Hey, or... Um, you know, oh. you never, you <laughs> never know. But I, I, that's not my plan. One of Lydia's brothers is gay, and has always been gay. And there, there's a whole um, subplot that that's mostly played out, I think, in short stories, where Lydia and her brothers have spent years hiding this from her mother because they think her mother would be upset. And her mother has spent years pretending she doesn't know because she thinks it's sweet that her children are trying to protect her. Until finally everybody gets sick and tired of it, and her mother basically says to the gay brother, I think it's time you and your boyfriend just blinked and got married already and, and you know, just tied the damn knot. And they say, oh, well, okay. And so then, you know, there's a big wedding with two grooms. So 
So there's there there is that. It's not. Uh, but I think in in Lydia, that that's in Lydia's family. But no, I don't think Bill is is going to come out of the closet um, because I don't think he's in the closet. But what do I know? I'm just the writer. <laughs> You're just the writer. Yeah. You, you can't figure. No, out. no, no, no. I, things have to happen, and then I write them down. Well, yeah. I mean, you're hearing voices or seeing pictures. Seeing pictures, right. See, if you say you're seeing pictures, they don't lock you up. If you say you're hearing voices, they, they want to put you on meds and stuff. So, uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, it depends what the voices tell well, you to do, too. You know. Yeah. You know. I, I, now, so does each one of the books in the series stand alone? Like, do you have to read them all in order, or do you have to um, do each one on its own? You, or how does You that can work? read them uh, on their own. They, uh, the only thing that really changes is Bill and Lydia's relationship. And it sort of changes with the speed of an acorn becoming a mighty oak. Um, so you, you really don't miss much if you go back and forth. There was a, a major shift in their relationship in uh, Paper Sun, but um, it, it, it had taken so long to build up that you, you wouldn't... Uh, it, it wouldn't matter. Occasionally, they'll refer to something. In, in this book, in the family business, Lydia spent some time on the phone with a Hong Kong detective, retired detective named Mark Kwan. He was from a book called um, <gasps> Reflecting the Sky. I couldn't remember the name of the book. He was from Reflecting the Sky. And so if you've read that, you know who he is. But if you haven't read it, it doesn't matter to this book uh, in, in terms of what he does for Lydia in this book. So they can all be read, uh, whichever one you happen to get your hands on. I know there are people in the mystery world who like to read in order, but it's, uh, in this case, not necessary. You could always make Bill Smith, you know, gay, and Lydia Chin could be um, oh, really wow. a lady boy. Well, yeah, I could. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, you know, working I, yeah, out ideas I, I here. Right? I, 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 um, you know, feel well, free. You know, Next I did, book. I did, um, I did get a uh, an inquiry from a uh, uh, Hollywood production company, who asked, uh, you know, they said we're really, we're really interested in your books, but does Lydia have to be Chinese? And I thought, well, if Lydia isn't Chinese, what do you have that everybody else doesn't have? You know, then it's just moonlighting, right? Um, yeah. so, so, you know, but people do make suggestions all the time and I never throw them away. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, well, no, someone to say, uh, they've never heard of you before and they hear you now and they're to buy one book to get to know who you are as a writer, best as a writer. Um, what would you suggest that they mm. pick up? Which one are your, of your books? Mm. Well, I would have to answer with two. I would have to say, uh, for a Lydia book. This one, Family Business. For a book narrated by Bill, the one before it, The Art of Violence, which takes place in the New York City art world, which is, uh, you really don't have to satirize because it satirizes itself. And that one raises all kinds of questions about what, what art really is and what it's for, which questions really interest me. So... Uh, there, there are those two. They're both set in New York. The Art of Violence is, as I say, set in the art world. And um, Family Business is set in Chinatown, downtown Chinatown. New York has six or seven Chinatowns now, but the oldest, the one in uh, Manhattan, 
is, is where that one sits. So I would suggest either of those. I was just curious in how long it takes you to, uh, from the beginning to the end, to really to get a book ready for your editors. Uh, about a year, sometimes less, uh, sometimes more. But, but a year is a good, uh, a good. Now, now that's including the sort of notes at the beginning and, and the research I do. You know, a book will be about this, 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 and then I have to do some research and, and make notes and, and write ideas and, and that kind of thing. So the actual writing doesn't start at the beginning of that year. But uh, from beginning to end, when I, when I say I'm working on a book, including the, uh, the, the early notes, you know, and, and when we talked about this before, um, before we were on air, now, um, you know, in this politically correct world lately, um, writing about Chinese characters, does it sort of, um, with, with COVID and, and all the anti-Asian sentiment, does it sort of make you more careful of how you write your characters? Well. I would not right now, for example, write a, a book in which there were Chinese scientists working on something suspicious or any um, kind of grand scheme to destroy the Western world, anything like that, because there's a lot of that thinking going on. I might do a book next, uh, the next book is for Bill, but I might do one after that for Lydia, in which anti-Asian violence becomes a, a big deal. Because, you know, it's always simmering, and lately it's been a, a much bigger deal since COVID, and I might have to confront that in a book, because it is something that all my Asian friends are now a little bit looking over their shoulders and and standing back from the subway car when it comes in, and a lot of that kind of stuff. And I, I think I might have to confront that, you know, head on in, in a book. And hmm. and otherwise, um, otherwise, really, uh, I, you know, th this book had been started before. Well, no, I guess I started it during the pandemic. But that those issues have not come up here. You know, the hardest part about that in Paper Sun, um, Paper Sun is set in Mississippi, and the uh, all Lydia gets is kind of weird looks. But there's a lot of racism in uh, anti-black racism in, in Mississippi, as one might expect. And the hard thing about dealing with that kind of thing in a book is actually the language, because you can't use the words actual racists use. I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't even say them. It kind of makes me sick. So it's hard. it would be hard to write about the kind of anti-Chinese racism that you see in New York without using the words of the racists. And that I'm not sure what to do about, actually. Um, and if, mm -hmm. if I do decide to do that book, I'll have to decide what, what to do. Uh, in in uh, Paper Sun, I couldn't use the N-word because I just couldn't do it. And yet, you know, they would. Uh, so uh, that's that's a difficult question. Yeah, yeah. It always is. And, and, and watching the way 
people in the world react in a in a crisis or like for instance with the covid and stuff and how how nutty a lot of people are out there acting um does that affect how you write your characters in 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 the fact of um because people do really surprising things you know like the whole you know covid's not real and and the Mm -hmm. you know and conspiracies and Jewish laser beams and Bill Gates injecting you with a chip. And you, you hear all these things and you see a lot of people that really follow this stuff and believe it, live it. Do you ever use that in your characters? I have not used that. It's, it's fascinating because it's, it's really um, a, a, a kind of delusion that people cling to because for some reason for them it's easier than believing the reality that there's a disease and we now have a vaccine and, and that's the end of that. And that, to me, is really fascinating, partly because in crime, I think the reason people read crime and mystery is because they're looking for explanation. In real life, you know, you walk out in the street and you get hit by a bus and people say, what happened? And what happened is you were crossing the street and got hit by a bus. In a crime novel there'll be a reason someone pushed you as an explanation. And I think that this, it's the same thing with the, with the uh, space lasers and the, and the chip, um, <laughs> that people would rather believe somebody's in control, even if it's bad guys who have right. space lasers, than believe the reality that actually nobody is in control and we're all just kind of muddling along as best we can. That's harder for people, and so they, they buy all this conspiracy stuff because at least it puts somebody in charge. And that actually fascinates me. Yeah. Well, I should put my laser away then? Well, yeah, oh, you know, I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think you can reach me over Zoom with your laser, but I could be wrong. Yeah. I could be wrong. You never know, right? He's, he's got the best laser beam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. Well, yeah, it's sort of, it's fascinating, and I, I agree with that, too. I think it's the idea of having someone in control rather than nobody, you know, and, and yeah. that's even more terrifying. And and uh, it's sort of, but the one, one thing that kind of goes further is, you know, the stories about people that they don't like. So all of a sudden, Hillary Clinton is eating ba- dead babies on her pizza. Mm-hmm. You right. know, you know right, like right. it goes to, instead of just saying, I don't like her. Yeah, they have to actually create some horrific setup, you know that you know she eats dead babies. Like, yeah, so 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 how could anybody like her? Yeah, um, yeah, and that's what that's the kind of thing that I don't get because then not only has someone made it up, but then people believe it. People yeah. take it in and go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like yeah, and that is that is kind of amazing. Is is that. It's weird enough that someone made that up. It's super weird that other people say, oh, yeah, I knew there was something I didn't like about her. I must have sensed that she ate dead babies on pizza. Yeah. Um, and, and you think, no, wait, that's completely ridiculous. Well, well yeah, that's, what, so that's, that's kind of what I was getting at in, the, in, your, in a character. So when you have characters in your book, um, do you ever write that kind of unpredictability or just did you think it kind of wrecks the story because someone will go well that's not believable yeah well you know what's funny is that um for the last two or three years um crime writers have been saying to each other 
we, we might as well resign because we can't, we can't compete with reality. You know, you, if you wrote any of this stuff, your editor would say, oh, come on, you know, make it, make it so people can buy it. So um, I, I haven't really dealt with super wacko characters. Yeah. Um, I, I think I might want to try it, but I haven't yet. You know, the, 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 the eating the babies on the pizza kind of people. And, and yeah, yeah. I, I have not. Um, I, I, I would have to make up some other wacko idea yeah. um, that would stand in for that. But I'll just think of the excitement of going to meet people like that for research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That might be a little too much excitement for me. Yeah, just think of the fun. You know, you know, I do know, the people I do know, though, who are wacko, are these very serious and otherwise completely normal um, flying saucer people. Yeah. Who, who know, personally, people who've been abducted by aliens and then returned, and, you know, so on and so on. And, and you think, wait, I, we were just, you know, talking about taking the bus uptown, and now you're taking, telling me about this person you know who is a abducted by an alien. I, I did not realize you were crazy. Um, so it's that, that kind of... Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, they're, Hitler's on the dark side of the moon. They're bringing him back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you didn't hear that? <laughs> I missed it. I missed it. Oh, I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. Makes you want to stay indoors, and not just because of COVID, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, uh, now, do you, do you have a website, or do you like to interact with people on social media, or how do, how do people yeah. get yeah, a hold both. Of I have a website, which is www.sjrosan.net, not .com, .net. .net, because yeah. they have to put a net. They have to yeah, put a net over <laughs> me, man. Um, Keep me under control there. Yeah, wow. and I'm also on Facebook. I'm the only S.J. Roseanne on Facebook. I have two pages, personal page and an author page. I'm on Instagram, also S.J. Roseanne, and I am on Twitter, or as uh, Marty Markowitz, former borough president of Brooklyn, used to say, Twitter. I'm on Twitter. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm on and S.J. Roseanne. It's just it's easy to find me. Um, and I, I love to, uh, to interact with people. I, I, I uh, studied photography for a while, and I post a lot of photographs. So, you know, you can interact with me and my love of New York um, anytime you want on social media. Yeah, and maybe uh, you guys can cook some pizza together. Share recipes. Oh, don't start with the pizza. <laughs> I, may never, I may never have another piece of pizza again. Well, there, <laughs> well you know. It's just—it's the world we live in, and we have to make the best of it, you know. Yeah. What, what, you're right. Did you did you find writing during the the COVID process or getting that sort of stuff um, harder? Uh, did it affect your writing? You know, it did not, and it's interesting because I know a lot of my friends could not write. Um, I people were making masks like crazy. All these creative people who couldn't write or couldn't paint or couldn't do whatever it is they do, they made masks, and I was getting masks in the mail. Um, which was kind of great, but I did not, I was in the middle of, of the book. I was in the middle of, of family business. I had another project going and I found I was doing about the same amount of, of work. Um, it, 
it was, uh, you know, it was interesting because as a writer, I get up in the morning and I, and I write. And I write until somewhere midday, um, one or, or, or two. And then I do whatever else it is I do in the afternoon. And during COVID, the else in the afternoon was what changed because there was basically nothing to do except go for a walk. But um, the morning, the writing was all the same. And uh, I, I feel very lucky that I didn't feel um, in, in any way shut down the way a lot of my friends did. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of grateful for that. Yeah, it's an interesting time, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have to wonder, but, you know, it's just dealing with stress and stuff. So I guess you don't think it affected you. It didn't seep in like any sort of darkness, do you think, in your writing? No, um, I don't think so. Not, not, in, uh, not in this book. Now, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next book that I, I will have had time to sort of digest it. Um, there, there was a lot of discussion among my friends, you know, do you put COVID in a book written during COVID? Do you have people not shaking hands? Do you have people wearing masks? That kind of thing. And I didn't. I, I put this, I wrote this book to take place in a post-COVID world, um, but COVID is not mentioned. I don't know about the next one. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, well, because yeah. Part, part of the problem with COVID is that it isn't over yet. So we don't know what a post-COVID world will really be like. This is a very kind of long, slow-moving crisis. And it, as opposed to, say, 9-11, which right. was over, and then you were in the post-9-11 world. We don't really know what post-COVID is going to look like. We don't know what the work world will look like, what restaurants will look like, any of that. That's just beginning to show itself now. So uh, it'll be interesting to me to see what the next book how that develops and whether um, the disease develops as part of it. Well, yeah, maybe Bill Smith will start using that spray tanner like Trump. And... Yeah, no, I don't think so. But Bill, what Bill might do is start giving, giving up smoking, because I have had people objecting to his smoking for a long time. And now that we've been through this, um, uh, you know, breath-related disease crisis, he may finally give up smoking, which would make him very cranky, which will be interesting in the next book because he's narrating it. So we'll see uh, if, if that well, happens. Well, there you go. He's going he's gonna to start using spray tan. He's going to be um, talking about the Hong Kong flu, and, flu and, he's going to, um, and he's going to be bisexual. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've got your next no, book plan. I'm going to get letters from people who turned in right toward the end of the show. There you and they say, wait a minute. Well, we, we heard that. Yeah, we heard. Well, that's all right. Please send all your mail direct <laughs> to S.J. Rosen. I mean, we, we'll have uh -huh. all of that Thanks up on the website. Just do one click and just tell her that you do not want this one turning into a Trump lookalike. Okay? So, anyway. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun, interesting. Um, yeah, and it and, really and has. the book we're talking about, of course, is family business, and it's a Lydia Chin and Bill Smith mystery. And the guest is our author. The author is our guest, <laughs> and is S.J. Roseanne. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It was great speaking with you. Great speaking with you too. 
Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.